Words have consequences. And the president has made my community and my people the enemy. And this is why, from my perspective, he is not welcome here. He should not come here while we are in mourning. This is the strongest, most courageous, and resilient community you'll find in America. Go back three or four years, we were not having this in this kind of way, one after another. We are outraged and sickened by this monstrous evil, the cruelty, the hatred, the malice, the bloodshed, and the terror. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. On Saturday, my niece, a 15-year-old organizer in Los Angeles, flew with a friend to Washington, D.C. to participate in a workshop with Students Demand Action. Now, Students Demand Action is part of Shannon Watts's great group, Moms Demand Action, which was conceived of as a grassroots organization to fight the NRA and the gun lobby and fight for public safety measures to protect people from gun violence. A few hours after she arrived, the news broke of the mass murder by a suspected white nationalist terrorist in El Paso. My niece quickly organized a small march on the Capitol and then joined up with a massive demonstration throughout the city and ultimately on the White House itself. She and the other members of Students Demand then went to bed only to be woken up a few hours later with the news of yet another mass murder, this time by a suspected male supremacist terrorist in Dayton, Ohio. She and the group again went and demonstrated, and then, finally, my niece texted me. She sounded drained, which is rare for her. It just seems to never end. Anyway, we're all drained today, and after a week in which dozens of people were killed across three far-flung states where the suspects are all three white men, they did things like keep rape lists and spell out Trump's name in assault rifles for their Facebook page. We just are all exhausted. Fortunately, I have a guest with a giant mind today who never seems to get exhausted. She's Jane Costin of Vox, an expert on white nationalism who argues, among other things, that we do wrong when we try to make sense of white nationalist domestic terrorism. She's here to help me undo the false stories about white nationalist terrorism and to talk about next steps. Jane, welcome back to Trumpcast. Thank you so much for having me back. So I just noticed on Twitter, you said, if you're contemplating pitching me on a product tied to the shootings in El Paso or Dayton, don't do this. Are people actually talking to you? What about like T-shirts and anti-gun violence kind of swag? The main crux of it seems to be people advertising web servers that are somehow white nationalist proof in some sense. Mm. I haven't read through these pitch emails because in general, I just delete them because if you're pitching me after a mass shooting, I don't want to hear about it. Yes. But the pitching never stops. The grift must continue, apparently. <laughs> the, grift, the grift goes unabated. Maybe you can go over your you know, something of an expert, maybe reluctant expert on white nationalism, on the far right, on conservatism, and on the Republican Party. The distinctions among those four things have gotten very, very blurry in the past few years. So a night like Saturday night or a week like last week is somewhat different for you than it is for the rest of us because you're called on to explain the spate of white nationalist violence, terrorism that has rolled through the nation and was in evidence over the weekend. So maybe tell me about how you heard about El Paso. Did you stay up late enough to follow Dayton also? So I heard about El Paso because I happened to be out during the day on Saturday, but I saw some news starting to trickle in. And I think one of the challenging things that we've gotten very used to with 
mass shootings is seeing that something has taken place, but needing to wait the requisite amount of time to see, you know, what is the most authoritative source talking about this particular issue. And Mm -hmm. so I didn't, I didn't stay up late on Saturday. You know, I think that one of the things that's important for everyone in general is that a lot of times it feels as if you have to be watching the news Mm -hmm. or else something will happen that you won't know about. And I think that for a lot of people, it's important to remember that you knowing a lot about the an event does not mean that, you know, it doesn't make it better for you. It won't make it more tolerable or easier. And I think that that's something, you know, I know for me, I know a lot about the history of white nationalism and the history of white nationalist rhetoric and white nationalist violence, but that hasn't made it make sense to me. I think that there's a sense of like, ah, yes, you're like, you're knowledgeable on this. I'm like, well, I, I know it, but I don't understand it. Yes. So I think that there's a, there's a real sense for, you know, I think for both personal reasons and in general, I didn't stay up late to watch news coverage because I think that in a lot of these cases, what might be best is to wait and to find out what the actual pieces of information are. Because at a certain point, if you're watching news coverage of people interviewing grieving people, like, what are you doing? You are not helping the national conversation. You are not assisting the people who have been wounded or injured, both Mm -hmm. physically and psychologically. You're just there watching. Yeah. And also potentially as, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Ivanka Trump, Beto O'Rourke, understandably used as an opportunity to make a political statement. Now this thing of uh, set pieces coming out on Twitter by politicians, but also journalists looking to, you know, kind of condemn this in the sternest, most intelligent signaling ways possible is somewhat frustrating, although entirely understandable because your adrenaline's up, your immune system is activated, and the most you can do is, seems like the most you can do is is try to understand it, try to draw a big circle around it, try to liken it to past moments in history. But I actually think that in some respects, and I know that this might seem kind of strange, but I think that there's a difference between having a lot of accurate information about something that has taken place yeah. and understanding it. Yes. I will never understand why someone would shoot so many people. I will never understand that. Mm-hmm. I've written a lot about conspiracy theories. And the reason why conspiracy theories are particularly effective, and it works across the ideological spectrum, is for two reasons. One, conspiracy theories tend to work on a, and I'm going to use this term, but I'll, I'll explain, on a globalist, anti-globalist frame. And by that, I mean there is a sense of an elite, an elite of any kind. And you hear that with anti-vaxxers on the left, and you hear it with you know, Alex Jones fans on the right. There, there's an elite of some kind. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter their political affiliation. They know things, and they're doing things, and that you are the victim of them. Yes. But the second factor in conspiracy theories is this idea that things need to make sense that there must be an answer or an understanding that you know, at some point we're going to receive a piece of information mm. about these shootings or something, they'll be like, ah, yes, well, two plus two equals four, and we're done here. Yeah. That's not, and I think, you know, I, I, one of my side passions is I love murder mysteries. And I think yeah. that one of the fallacies of murder mysteries is that in the Agatha Christie version, there is a crime. It's never yeah. very bloody. But there's a crime, there's a solution, there's an ending, and you move on. But that's not 
what happens in real life. And I think that we need to get to the point where we can recognize that we can know what has happened, but we, I will never understand it. I will never understand what drives someone towards the sociopathy that is white nationalism. You hear the stories of people who've been radicalized, but it's always like, well, two plus three equals I'm a white nationalist now. And it just, there's this middle point where I'm just like, wait, but how, what? Yes. Back in the days right after the election, when lefties were pulling their hair out, trying to figure out why people voted for Trump and with probably good faith, we're saying economic anxiety had led to this kind of racism. And you're right, to assign coherence to it in a way is to, well, give it much more political power than it maybe deserves. Did you read, speaking of detective stories, Quinta Jurassic had a really good opinion piece in The Times on a different subject, the Mueller report as a detective story. And she goes to say that, you know, it's not, as you say, an Agatha Christie story that wraps up nicely at the end. It's closer to a kind of noir story where at the end you just say it's Chinatown. Right, exactly, (laughs) where there isn't actually a satisfying answer. There's something to, I think, human nature that we want a satisfying answer. And for a lot of people, it's chemtrails or 9-11 was an inside job because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. But none of this will ever make sense. Right. And actually, in a roundabout way, I also was going to say that I brought to mind the description of psychoanalysis somewhere, and I should dig this up, that it's not that you're trying to get this patient to tell a coherent story. You're trying to break them out of their false coherence. So they have a story that's like, my mother neglected me as a child, so now I'm a date rapist. And right. you're, you're, you, the, the patient is better when he walks away saying, oh, that was just a lot of random things and I don't need to connect them. Right, exactly. <laughs> and I think that, I think for many people, randomness is inherently uncomfortable. Conspiracy theories are built on kind of a sense of pattern recognition. The idea that like Mm. this person over here plus this person over here equals conspiracy. When in real life, at a certain point, you if you you'd you'd be doing that all the time. For instance, I recently found out that a friend of mine from college also knew this other person who I had never met when we were both at college. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's just how life works. (laughs) Yes, right. Like the idea of coincidence is something that I'm just like, it's a real thing. It really happens. Just to bring it back to what took place here, at its root, it's worth noting that white nationalism and white supremacy in general don't make sense because they are inherently very stupid. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that something being incredibly stupid and very dangerous, that those two things can exist at the same time. But the idea that we need to assign some sort of like grand political importance to something that is inherently very stupid. How could something so stupid kill so many people and result in such pain and death? You know, history is full of extraordinarily stupid ideas that have resulted in incredible tragedy. I am looking forward to learning more about what took place in Dayton. You know, I'm from Ohio. I I had a lot of friends who went to UD, the University of Dayton, and, you know, it's not far from Cincinnati, which is where I'm from. But so far, we're seeing kind of this weird tandem. Um, I know my hometown ABC affiliate, WCPO, they did one of those, like, he was such a nice boy. What could have possibly Mm. happened? And then Mm. simultaneously, like, oh, he had a rape list? And I'm like, hmm, hmm, interesting, interesting, fun. Cool. Great. (laughs) 
I'm also reminded, I think I've mentioned on the show before, an amazing miniseries that the BBC made called 37 Days about the run-up to World War I, which is exactly what you're describing. Some outsized personalities, some crazy arguments, the pretext of, you know, the uh, murder, the assassination in Serbia, and then suddenly Europe is laid to waste. We've also had Andries Dutoy on the show before, who is a South African activist. And he essentially reached out to us to say he thought after Justice Kennedy retired, that was just the kind of seemingly or actually random act that could lead to the demise of the government, the kind of thing he'd seen as the precedent to apartheid. Right. So, yeah, I'm completely with you on this idea. On the other hand, just as a pragmatic idea, we need to organize our thinking in order to prevent, in hopes that, you know, we will once more have a country that can roughly safeguard the well-being of its citizens. There is some kind of rough grouping that I think we can do. And let's actually start with the Dayton figure, because we're describing all this as white nationalist, white supremacist violence. And that's certainly true in the in the writing of the two suspects in El Paso who believed in some kind of social Darwinism, was a supporter or or advocate yeah. for slavery and racism. And then in El Paso, the kind of replacement theory that that suspect mm-hmm. advocated. But in Dayton, what surfaced is a kind of male supremacy. Right. Which I think is something that we, we are not, in general, the people who have made this point about the dangers of kind of weaponized misogyny. I'm thinking of writers like Rebecca Traister and others. Because, you know, it's not that... I think that this this always gets challenging because people are like, oh, weaponized misogyny. If you're just like, women are like fantastic. I'm like, no, that's not the argument I'm making. I feel like there's a sense (laughs) of like, women can be awful people too. But there's a sense... And again, I you know, we don't know enough about what took place in Dayton. But... Based on the history of the alleged the alleged suspect, I think that it's worth noting that he appears to have targeted his own sister. Mm-hmm. And you know how misogyny works in mass shooting incidents across the ideological spectrum. It's pretty it's pretty robust. Um, you know, you hear from. I'm reminded a little bit. And obviously, Dayton's situation is somewhat different, but I'm reminded a little bit that a lot of kind of the white nationalist rhetoric we see in manifestos in Christchurch and even in El Paso is very much about birth rates and very much mm-hmm. about being outbred. And it's interesting mm-hmm. because that actually you see that same type of rhetoric in ISIS materials as well. Hmm. This idea of the most important thing is to have as many Muslim children as possible to hmm. kind of out, outweigh the existence of the West in general. And so that's been a concern in some certain countries where there's been a, some kind of conspiracy theorizing about efforts to introduce contraception into like, sub-Saharan African countries. There's some conspiracy theorizing like, oh, this is try- they're trying to stop us from having children. Hmm. And I also think that there's a sense, you know, I, there was a lot of conservative saying like, well, it appears that the Dayton shooter may have kind of a left-leaning ideology. And I'm like, one, that doesn't make it better or worse. Mm, right. you know, if you're, if you are, if you agree with me politically and you murder 25 people, you do not agree with me politically because one of my main political beliefs is don't murder 25 people, yes. you know, or any people ever for any reason. And, and so, don't use violence to achieve political ends, which is exactly. the you know, first hallmark of terrorism. But I think that it's worth noting in this case that the danger of misogyny, it can't be considered separately 
from either a discussion of white nationalist violence or a discussion of what may have taken place in Dayton, because misogyny goes right. You know, it's not like there there are very few proud feminist neo-Nazis. You know, the, the misogyny yeah. is kind of a given in a lot of the circles where violent rhetoric is encouraged. And, yeah. you know, I'm thinking ex- you know, you saw that a little bit when people learned about men's rights activists mm-hmm. um, or even kind of, you know, the rise of involuntary celibate incel people, like the weaponization of misogyny, yep. but that takes place in a lot of different areas. And a lot of times it, you know, the political affiliation will matter somewhat less than that adherence to misogyny as an ethos. That's supremely interesting. I mean, the social Darwinist tract that the Gilroy killer is from the 1890s, yeah. like that's a period you, you understand in the rise of white nationalism, this treatise that he liked, I've forgotten the name of, but it promoted this thing, social Darwinism, very much in vogue sort of among extremists, but also novelists who, you know, a lot of the naturalist fiction was kind of a survival of the fittest and, you know, that the weak deserved it. There was a kind of slave morality, obviously shows up in Ayn Rand, but it also shows up in uh, Jeffrey Epstein's thinking. Oh, I'm well aware of Right, the evolutionary psychology, which is just social Darwinism by another name, which is obviously, you know, enslaving and trafficking in women men, girls and women, it's misogynist slavery as opposed to racist slavery. But it tracks it tracks very much with the white nationalist discourse, I think. Personal supremacy of white men and either you have a Jeffrey Epstein trying to rape everyone so that he can uh, create a master race or you have incels who feel left out of that project um, and want to get revenge on women and not by, well, by either enslaving or raping them. And the other thing is Killing them is, uh, I mean, you've warned against trying to make this logical, but killing women that you would, like, in theory, want to breed with does not seem to seem, uh, does not seem to um, further your cause. On the other hand, raping them, which is what the Dayton guy planned to do, is possibly an extension or the kind of thinking that Epstein engaged in when he imagined non-consensual sex with underage girls that could result in this master race. Anyway, I mean, this is maybe tormented logic, but there's certainly two strains that have grown up together. Right. Uh, you know, the, the Epstein-style thinking, which, you know, I got to say, thrives on the intellectual dark web, you know, with, with Jordan Peterson as a kind of, you know, hero to incels. Um, and, uh, and, and also at the kind of lower levels among the incel rank and file or the, you know, social Darwinists or whatever. Um, so, all right. So I've been, I, I, there was a rush to call what happened terrorism, domestic terrorism. And that mm-hmm. certainly seems like a suitable framework, a use, a, so, a useful framework, but it's not useful all the way. Yeah. Uh, and let me see what you think. So terrorists, if you like think about the IRA, um, you know, Hamas, uh, uh, ISIS, are um, often aligned with an ideology that's out of power um, and are rebelling against what they see as an occupying army. You can almost see the Confederacy this way. They're they're classified in a different way, or certainly terrorism during the French Revolution. But right now, these figures have right-wing ideologues front and center in our government, you know, notably in the White House, and are still acting as though... 
they're under some kind of occupation by the politically correct, by people of color, by women. Can you make any sense of this? Well, it doesn't make sense, because I think that that's something that's important to note here is that actual political power, which the people who I think that some of these people would say that they are somewhat affiliated with politically. um, I want to be really careful here because I, you know, I do this thing where I, when I talk about what I write about, which is conservatism, the GOP, the American right, and white nationalism. These are each separate entities. Conservatism is not a white nationalist ethos. White nationalists are not inherently conservative. Uh, Being a racist Mm. is not required by conservatism. Edmund Burke did not like add that in as some sort of extra proviso. (laughs) But I would also say it kind of goes to what I was saying about conspiracy theories, which is that they're not necessarily left, right, but they work on this idea that there's there are people who know everything and have all the power and are in charge of everything. And then there's you. Mm-hmm. And so even when you see that, even when your team, quote unquote, is in charge, you are not in charge. And so that's why um, I was interested because there was a bunch of kind of um, conspiracy theorizing about El Paso taking place. And the number of people who were talking about it on Twitter before all of these tweets obviously got deleted or changed or something like that was this idea like, oh, this is the government trying to take our guns. And I'm thinking to myself, like, Mm. the government is controlled by, you know, let's see, Republicans control the White House, the Senate, Senate. the The judiciary, increasingly. The judiciary, basically. (laughs) I mean, and in Texas specifically, they're in charge of Texas state government. The actual, it's one of those things where, like, you almost are like, did you forget to post this in, like, 2009 or something? Yes, yes. But it doesn't matter because it has to do with this idea of, like, there is an elite in power. Yes. And then then there's you. And it doesn't really matter whether or not they, the people in power agree with you politically, because I think that there's a sense you can always be more bombastic out of power than in power. Mm -hmm. I think that that's why it's a lot of people who, you know, they vote for someone because they're like, I'm going to go to Washington and change everything. And then they come to Washington and don't change anything because of course they don't. That's how, you know, we have a bicameral legislature, which makes it very difficult to get quote unquote, get things done and really relies more on stasis than anything else. And I think that for the folks who kind of hoped or feared that Donald Trump would come in on January 20th, 2017 and just burn the whole thing down. Mm-hmm. I'm looking out my window right now and the <laughs> thing has not yet been burned down. But I think that whether or not your political or ideological allies are an actual political power mm-hmm. doesn't really matter in terms of how you see that political power being utilized. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump who are still convinced that El Paso might be a false flag operation to try and lead to a gun grab, despite the fact that they voted for people who they think will not let that happen. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, it doesn't make sense. There is no means by which we can understand this beyond thinking of this as a relationship between people who perceive other people having power and them having no power. It almost is, it makes more sense when you think about um, conspiracy theories that arise in minority groups. I'm thinking, for example, that one of the tenets of Nation of Islam, it's very anti-Semitic and very much focused on like Jewish people being in charge of everything, but mm-hmm. also... Jewish people being like inherently weak. Yeah. You see that I've actually written before about hey, anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory because it's not that Jewish people are subhuman. It's that Jewish people are secretly in charge of everything, but simultaneously very weak, but yes. also in charge of everything. And it's one of those things where 
you can't hold that in your head at the same time, but a lot of people do. And so I think that it's worth noting that a lot of the responses or this idea of like, it makes complete sense to think, but you supported this, you know, these particular politicians, why would you think that these particular politicians are going to do X and Y that you find very concerning? But it does, it has to do with a relationship with power rather Mm. than so much relationship to politics. I think that's absolutely right. I read Scott Adams, you know, he's the Dilbert creator, Trump supporter. I reviewed his book for Politico. It's a really crazy book, but, you know, I tried, I tried my best to kind of at least make the sentences be sentences with objects and verbs and subjects. And the best I could do was say he is is actually terrified of Hillary. So he's one of those people who calls her Killary and offered his endorsement of her at what he felt was gunpoint by her supporters. My second data point here is that I was on a panel in Las Vegas about literary subjects, writing in the age of Trump. And one of the people on the panels, a sometime Breitbart writer, Mickey Kaus, and he asked that armed security guards come into the literary conference for fear that other Hillary supporters like myself, whom he calls Hillary, might pull guns on him or attack him. Right. So sort of the perception that they're, yeah, they're weak, they're PC, they're, they're um, you know, slave, exact, some kind of slave morality, you know, that they're trying to, like, keep the strong men down, but also that they're somehow... They're, they're, they're somehow... I mean, I think that that's the entire rhetoric around Hillary Clinton in 2015, 2016, was yeah. she is evil and will kill everyone, but also she's dying and is very weak. <laughs> that's right. And it's one of those things yeah. where it's like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's right. I want to go back to the mention of the elites because I don't know if you read, there was a piece about flat earthers in The New Yorker written by a friend of mine, Alan Burdick, and he was describing right after he had met them at one of their conferences that, one, they described themselves as woke. Right. Just let that sink in. Like, they are awake and everyone else is in a coma, in a stupor of believing the world is a sphere. So that's the, you know, I see what's up here in the conspiracy. And second, they really do, in the same way that all of us resent the perceived elites, you know, either the banks for calling in our student loans at usurious rates or Yale for not giving us admission to the law school, but giving it to bros or whatever, that elite they they assigned everywhere. You know, the compasses and GPSs are rigged and the pilots are in on it. And so in a way, it's, it's such a useful conspiracy to study because it has this idea of 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 that everyone in power is lying to them all the time. And that goes to this idea that something is an occupying power, if not Donald Trump, in the United States, that maybe some of the white nationalist mass murderers perceive that's not Trump. And that occupying power seems to be something like the politically correct, like someone who's condescending to them, who's lying to them, who's headquartered at the media in academia, at Davos, wherever else, who are lying to them about vaccines, lying to them about big pharma, lying to them about civil rights. Because I just read that Republicans, whether or not they support the wall or Trump, universe, almost universally in huge numbers, believe that political correctness is a scourge and right. believe that a certain kind of person, probably someone like you or me, is condescending to them all the time, doesn't respect their intelligence, and that they need to have some kind of rebellion against women and people of color 
you know, for this crime of political correctness. I would note that many of the people who paid political correctness as this scourge have things about which they, you must be very politically correct. You know, if, you know, <laughs> I believe it was a Cato researcher who came up with the term patriotic correctness, which is very much of the like, back the blue and the flag and things like that. You know, they'll get super offended about a whole different host of things. Right, like Kaepernick. The, there was something just like rude and disrespectful and yes, horrible about it. Yeah. That's um, great. But I would also note that one of the driving forces in movement conservatism, and I separate that from conservatism ideologically, because I think okay. that movement conservatism is the act of trying to get conservatism into policy and to law. But in movement conservatism, it has been largely driven over the last, I'd say, five to six years by reflexive anti-leftism, where it's just kind uh. of like, do you hate the left? Well, we like you, which is how you get Miley Yiannopoulos at CPAC. Yeah. But I think that this, you know, huh. and David French at National Review has pointed this out explicitly with the issue of white nationalism, because a lot of the kind of memeing racism of like the 2015-2016 election was very much viewed as kind of like, no, 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 we're fighting PC. And, you know, not to be not to be too frank here, but I don't think that repeatedly tweeting nigger at me is really taking down the politically correct <laughs> establishment. But that kind of, oh, don't take it seriously. Oh, they're memeing. Oh, it's like, it's ironic. That mm. kind of reflexive anti-leftism opens up the barn doors to actual white nationalists and white supremacists to kind of enter or kind of reestablish themselves in movement conservatism. Yes. Is there any chance you saw Netflix had a... Um not all that good show called Goliath with Billy Bob Thornton in it. He's a washed up alcoholic lawyer and he spends a lot of it basically complaining about snowflakes. Like you can't say fucking anything to anyone. That's right. one of the things he's always saying. You can't, you know, tell a girl she has nice legs. You can't. He just feels like he's been gagged and bound by some like new political correctness thing that makes his jokes no longer funny. He can no longer get laid because the girls are too whatever they are. And he really expresses down to the fact that he seems to feel he's been absolutely silenced when he's, you know, we all hit a wall when our jokes aren't funny anymore. It's, right. You know, it's aging. And we all can't come to a time where we can't pick up girls or boys or whatever anymore because aging. Also, this idea that that is somehow a political problem for other people that aren't you. Like, yes, you know, I think for either yes. one of us, if we said something incredibly offensive and someone said, wow, that's incredibly offensive. My first thought would be like, oh, shit, I am so sorry. Yes. Yes, Not, that's right. How dare you try to stymie me? And especially because I think that it makes an argument about free speech, which is not actually what free speech is, mm. which is that, you know, that character basically thinks that he should not only be able to say those things, still, which he could, but that yes, people exactly. should react to them the way he wants. Yes, them to. exactly. He can say anything he wants. He just doesn't get laid or get laughs for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. just like, if people don't find your jokes funny, that is not a, a problem for politics. That is a problem for you. Yeah. And so I think that there's that sensibility that free speech means like freedom <laughs> from being told your take is stupid or being told like, no, I do not want to have sex with you because you suck. Like that's like, your free speech is not being infringed upon. Yes, that's right. That's very interesting. Our producer on the show is gender non-binary and uses the right. pronoun they. And, yes. and they know this. It's been incredibly challenging for me just cognitively to get that pronoun and get the, the right verb with it and accept a new understanding of plural. I mean, I really like had to, you know, rewire a certain section of my 50-year-old brain to do it. And, uh, you know, they gave me a lot of room to sort it out. And, you know, it's been really edifying for me. On the other hand, initially, 
I was balky. I just didn't want to use any pronoun because I, I thought it wasn't just a cognitive failing. It was a moral one. You know, one of the issues that I always notice in this particular instance or in elsewhere, I'm reminded of when people get very upset about homeless encampments. Yes. And you're like, you know, if you're bothered by homeless encampments, think how bothered the people who are in the homeless encampments are. And so I think <laughs> that in terms of, you know, with pronoun usage or even with like, quote unquote, PC terms. Yeah. The issue is not whether or not I am like having difficulty with subject verb agreement. The issue is, does this person feel like they can have a conversation with me without feeling like I am with every sentence telling them that they're not who they are. Yeah, that's right. That's something worth noting is that, you know, there's a lot of people whining about snowflakes who also then whine about how mean people are for gently telling them that they would prefer not to be misgendered. Yes. And, you know, I, I would say that snowflakery appears to be just a national tradition for everyone. One of the things that I and I did a dissertation with and my advisor's work was on language conflict, which is not always religious or race conflict, but can be quite divisive. You know, Gaelic in Ireland, Basque language. Right. So sometimes terrorism is associated with language groups. And some of this focus with political correctness makes me think that there's a dialect conflict, at least a dialect conflict. Some of it is openly, you know, Spanish versus, you know, a kind of dialect of American English that Trump and some of his supporters speak, which is, you know, practically doesn't track for many of the rest of us. That conflict does seem to be openly about language. We keep seeing these videos of people saying, speak English to people who are speaking Korean or who especially are speaking Spanish. We have no national language. We live as a polyglot nation. We should, by rights, you know, speak more than speak two or more languages, but but many of us don't. And those of us who are entrenched in a narrow dialect, you know, Trump is said to have a, a, a vocabulary right around um, that of a first grader, someone just learning to read. Um, he Like he talks at a first grade level. So, you know, if you have this very small vocabulary, it's quite threatening to hear people with college education speaking in accents with the different diction. My father is a lifelong liberal, uh, and he, you know, he, he gets it wrong as often as he gets it right. You know, he still says girls and ladies and so forth. It's not as though it's shocking to hear those words. It's just we started, the dialects have started to diverge. Right. And frankly, when I heard Trump describe the grab by the pussy thing as locker room talk, I, I've never been in a locker room like that. I don't know how people talk. That's like, that made it seem like, well, this we're having this conversation in ancient Greek. Also, when would Trump have been in a locker room? Like, can, if what what sport did Trump play? I would be very interested to know, you know, besides <laughs> golf, which, yeah. as I remember, there are locker rooms when one plays golf, but one does not spend a great deal of time in one. <laughs> but it also was based on this. And I think that the thing that gets me is how the assumptions made, not necessarily by Trump himself, or any political figure, but by the people around them and their biggest supporters, mm. seems to be what is the lowest possible bar for our supporters? And we'll go underneath that one. So, for example, hmm. one of the things I, I think is interesting <laughs> with Trump is that he was well aware of who David Duke and Pat Buchanan and a host of other people on the far right or the white supremacist right were in like 2010, 2012. Mm. And then suddenly in 2015, he just forgets all of it. Ah. You know, and I've argued before that there is something I find deeply problematic about politicians who assume the worst of their own supporters. Mm -hmm. And I think that with kind of the locker room talk thing, then you had a host of people 
people going on Fox News and other conservative outlets saying, like, we don't have a problem with that. But these are people who are paid by the either at the time the Trump campaign or with close ties to the Republican Party. So basically, they are being paid to say that, like, this is not a problem so that because, you know, this is how real people talk, even though they have as good a knowledge of how real people talk as I don't know, any coastal elitist. Yes. Um, yeah. And so it's all this basing everything on this assumption of why people vote and who votes for whom. Yeah. That seems to be like, it, it's really concerning. Yep. Did you see this? Uh, There's so much to read over the weekend. It was a fire hose. So you easily may have missed it. I missed so many things. But Dan Gomez, who I think is a former FBI supervisor of some kind, and he's been quoted um, a couple of times about Trump. Notably to me, he said something like, they're their own wiretaps during the Mueller investigation, which I thought was a great phrase. But he also said something that was really, really striking, which was that the FBI, he believes, and all of this is just allegation, but has been warned off heavily prosecuting and circumscribing the action of white nationalist terrorists because they're so aligned with his base. That's the concern here, is this understanding that that is who the base is, when I don't think it is. And well, I think it's important also to separate. I, I'm obsessed with defining terms that perhaps yeah. no one ever wanted to define. But <laughs> there is a difference between people who voted for Trump and Trump's base. Mm-hmm. It's like, did you buy the album or did you go to the concert and buy all of the like T-shirts and swag? Like there's a difference here. And so I think that but making the worst assumptions, assuming that like I can't denounce or I can't talk tough about white nationalism because my fans might be white nationalists when one, I don't think that's true. And two, like, Even if it were true, that's bizarrely insulting to Latino Trump voters, to non-white Trump voters of whom there are. And I think that that's that's something that gets me, like this idea that like you have to make the worst assumption about the people you want to vote for you. Yep. There's certain things, however it gets defined, where we've blown past common sense so long ago. One small detail about terrorism that keeps holding me up is killing women and children is just considered barbaric, not quite taboo, but barbaric, you know, in a long rules of engagement, you know, that like that with civilization comes the idea that you, you know, don't rape and pillage, you don't murder children, you don't murder civilians. And we... White nationalism is somehow identified also with violating certain rules of engagement that are, I think, part of the reason that all these murders leave us speechless is that they are, to some extent, without precedent. I know that right now there's a trend for likening them to al-Qaeda, but they just seem different in many ways. For one, I mean, I don't know if it's worth noting, but the El Paso killer who drove nine hours or whatever to El Paso to stop his imagined Hispanic invasion murdered plenty of white people. And it seems like in white nationalist shootings, it's as often as not people in the guy's very community that go down, who are killed, who look like him. Right. Because ideologically, though, like they're race mixers. They are assisting, you know, they're the real enemy because that's one of the groups that white nationalists hate most of all are kind of white moderates, white liberals who they believe are helping the invasion take place. And also there's a lot of randomness to these types of crimes. But I think it's also worth noting that, you know, when you view everything through such a strict for me or against me lens, everyone who's not strictly for you becomes in opposition or they're in the way. So they Mm -hmm. must be removed. I mean, do you think there's any way? And I, 
not only do I disagree with liberals and Republicans who say that there's like a legitimate grievance that white working class men have of economic anxiety jobs going offshore that generates their racism and, and that somehow we can understand it that way. But I do think that there is what you identified as a kind of standing emotional state that can be put in flames where you think that the elite have shut you out of some like backdoor club that you need to bust your way into. Some of this is in actually the language of the participants in the college admission scandal. Right. That, you know, back there is a world that they they don't really get admission to, so they have to cheat their way in. Or, you know, I guess all of us have been rejected by someone that we imagine thinks they're better than we are. And so there is in that particular dynamic something that can be, if not sympathized with exactly, but engaged with. One last thing before you go. I know that you are involved, as a lot of people who are close to this subject, with questions about platforming, 8chan, some of the platforms where white nationalists, white supremacists gather, even plan and crow about their like violent actions, and the founder who's advocated that it be dissolved— um, and then there, you know, we have some precedent for uh, deplatforming Daily Stormer and other neo-Nazi right. hate sites. I, I mean, what do you make of this? Uh, does it does this get into treading on First Amendment? Is there some actual work to be done here? I think that there are a couple of arguments here. First of all, I think that focusing on 8chan as a proxy for how we deal with white nationalism is a mm. fool's errand, mm. because I think that there's a tendency of like, we want to do something. And I get that. But I think that kicking off 8chan, one, that doesn't mean that it will not find another host. Yep. It does not mean that the people who are using it won't go somewhere else. You're already mm-hmm. hearing, you know, people are already using Discord and Telegram and a couple of other services. And at a certain point, you would just start, like, if you are going to shut down services because white nationalists use them, we are going to need to shut down a whole host of things because white nationalists are American citizens who are using the same services and platforms that other people use. Mm-hmm. But I also think Jamal Bowie and a bunch of other people have been making the point that If your goal is to disrupt radicalization, um, and you think about this similarly to ISIS, for example, you know, if you cut off the means by which individuals can be radicalized, I think that that is worthwhile. Yeah. I think that that is helpful. But I also think it's worth making sure that we are not missing the forest for the one particular very bad tree. Because I think that there is a sentiment in which like, okay, if we can handle this, this is a small issue we can talk about. We've had Mark Bray on the show before who wrote the Antifa handbook and and he's a sociologist who'd who'd done a lot of work on Antifa. And I think it hardly needs to be said, but we're not talking about the cartoon of Antifa as some kind of terrorist organization analogous to neo-Nazis because there's been zero incidents of mass murder by Antifa this year when there's been, you know, hundreds of them by white nationalists. But in any case, what he says about Antifa in Europe is that there are often people with other jobs, including working on the environment or sometimes lefty causes or sometimes something else altogether, who mostly are disrupting extremist right platforms and their efforts to organize at the level of the code and on computers, the kind of thing that a smart person can do. And then it's, you know, a kind of civil disobedience. Right. And I think that there's been um, the work by like uh, Unicorn Discord and um, a couple of other groups like that. But my concern here is historically when 
you have these two battling entities attempting to kind of one trying to use means of getting information on opposition, go that back and forth. I would say that historically law enforcement has tended to be far more sympathetic to authoritarian movements than to, I think, Antifa or anti-fascist movements. Mm -hmm, And I think mm. that that's why you're seeing even before the shootings happen, Ted Cruz wrote a letter to the FBI urging the FBI to declare Antifa a domestic terrorist organization. Mm-hmm. One, a thing the FBI does not do. Mm-hmm. And two, also something that wouldn't mean anything. Because, yeah. you know, at a certain point, there are a lot of groups that anyone could think of as being domestic terror organizations. But what the whether or not the government thinks it is one, I think that's a big challenge. But I, w- yeah. I would say that, like, there's a concern that the power of the federal government mm-hmm. is largely aimed at maintaining stasis. Yeah. That is something that is really worth noting when you're talking about kind of the battling between anti-fascists and white nationalists is that the government will tend to come down on the side of whoever is offering the least change and the most stability and shows the most deference to authority. And we've seen that again <sighs> as yeah. you, know, you see people... Like you see police high-fiving members of the Proud Boys or something like that, because there's a sense of like, we understand each other, whereas these weirdos over here, we don't get that. That is incredibly chilling and sort of goes to that point by the ex-FBI that this is Trump's base, they're in power, and maybe this is a more extremist offshoot, but it's not disrupting the apple cart. It's not like making someone want to burn down Trump Tower or the White House. I also think that Trump's extremely violent language about, you know, we'll murder these guys immediately, parenthetically, lots of them die in their attacks, as I think the guy in Dayton was killed by the police. His violence, and then I don't know if you saw Ivanka Trump's very violent language about evil must be destroyed. There's very much of a sense I'm seeing a lot of people like, we have to have a war on white nationalism, and I'm like, yeah. I don't, I don't Yeah, know. come on, right. Like, do, haven't we been there before? Uh, historically, this ends poorly. It just ends poorly. It just ends poorly. Thank you so much for being here, Jane. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. My guest has been Jane Coston. She's a senior writer at Vox and an expert on white nationalism. That's our show for today. What'd you think? Share your inner truth with us on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then you know what I'm going to say. Head on over to Slate Plus and become a member. Today is your day. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you're just missing out on all sorts of perks digital swag, and ad-free episodes of your favorite podcasts, including this one. You'll also get bragging rights to your podcast-loving friends when you let them know you're supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Daniel Schroeder. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.